The Unstuff America podcast is hosted by the most organized man in America, Andrew Mellon. Listen in for Andrew's take on America's clutter crisis. From guns to gold, he dives deep into America's self-destructive obsession with possession and how that impacts the American dream. Get real-life tools and strategies to take responsibility, set yourself free, and live your values every day. And now, Andrew Mellon. Hello, and welcome to Unstuff America, the podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mellon, and I am so excited about our guest today. Our guest is Gillian Caldwell. She is a longtime friend, and she is a powerhouse in the world. So we're in for a great, great treat today. We're going to learn both on the macro and the micro level what allows Gillian to accomplish so much in her personal life and her professional life to affect change around the globe. And without further ado, Gillian, please just share a little bit about yourself, about your work, what your home life is like, if you live with other people or if you live alone, those kinds of things, so that we can just get a sense for the context of your, um, your domestic life. Well, so I'm originally from New York, although I live in London now and have been living here for the last two years with my family. I have uh, 13 and 15-year-old children, an elder daughter and a younger son, and my partner, Louis. Um, we moved here for my new job, which is not so new anymore, as the CEO <laughs> of Global Witness. And we focus on investigations and campaigns around natural resource extraction and related corruption, environmental and human rights abuse. Um, so that's a little about me. Excellent. And um, you folks, folks alive? Yep. Both of my parents are alive and well. Um, my mother has had uh, her second hip surgery, and mm. that, of course, has put some strain on my brothers and I because there's been various complications and none of us live nearby. Um, but in terms of navigating that challenge between midlife and children and parents, I would consider myself fairly lucky thus far. Excellent. Excellent. And I know that it is a concern or a challenge for some of our listeners that being in that sandwich generation, raising your own children and also having aging parents who are anywhere on that spectrum from totally awesome to having some complications as a result of aging and needing support. So it's, it's another real demand. There are plenty of uh, narrative demands, stories that we tell ourselves about how we're using our time that are fictional, but there are very real demands that need to be uh, considered when we're trying to do the math of how we're spending our time. So that's great. Um, I'm so glad that your folks are in, you know, all things considered are in, are in good shape. Tell me um, on a macro and micro level, what, uh, what really inspires you and what makes you upset, what pisses you off? So, um, so we can get a sense of that too, both, you know, small, big picture, big picture upsets and, um, and inspirations. So big picture excitement is really, you know, the the power and possibility that people have to make a difference in the world and notwithstanding, you know, a lot of scary news every day, which seems, of course, to be the news media's obsession, the scary news rather than the good news. I know. What's that um, about? There. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there is a lot of bad news and I'm not saying we shouldn't cover it, but no, I think it would be good to be learning about um, you know, solutions and, uh, and and people working together to make a difference. So I, I'm inspired by that, by, by social justice work, broadly defined. Um, 
at a macro level, uh, you know, I think we're in a dangerous trend uh, globally, which is uh, one in which I think people are increasingly frustrated by and cynical about governance and politicians, and they feel that the system is rigged, as it so often is, um, against everyday people and in favor of uh, vested interests, whether it's companies or wealthy individuals. And unfortunately, you know, at times, especially if they're feeling economically insecure, that can lead them to make fairly uh, rash choices, as I believe they did in the case of electing uh, Donald Trump and in the case of Brexit here in the U.S., in the U.K., which was the decision to leave the European Union. So, uh, you know, at a macro level, those are the, you know, the excitements and the concerns. At a micro level, um, yeah, I get excited by just um, beautiful landscapes and um, those everyday moments, you know, where you see humanity and beauty shining through. And I get yes. frustrated by people who aren't honest enough with themselves and other people around them and who don't seem conscious of what it means to be in human community. Yeah, it is a challenge. I think that certainly um, with the work that I do, getting people to shift their mindset and actually get clear with themselves without judgment around the choices that they're making is the key or a key, not maybe the key, but certainly a key to shifting the physical clutter and challenges that you're facing so that you can do some deeper interior work, right? I mean, the surface stuff, it's going to just sit there if you're not clear about what really matters to you if you if you can't if you can't tell the truth to yourself about that without judging yourself it's going to be that much harder to affect any change on a macro or a micro level so on a scale from 1 to 10 1 being the least organized and 10 being the most organized where would you put yourself on that scale i'm a 9.5 awesome um <laughs> so the missing i am as anybody can tell you one of the most organized people you'll ever meet um however there is one context in which i am not organized and it's actually a sort of it's almost like an achilles heel huh. and interestingly enough it's packing it's packing a bag Wow. Um, I seem to have a real block around packing a bag. And unless I really get conscientious about it and make a list before I even pack, I invariably find myself with too much or too little or something obvious missing. Or I might often, you know, as a mother with a busy family and a busy job, be uh, thinking about myself last when it comes to packing, making sure my kids have got everything they need and I walk out the door, you know, without shoes on kind of thing. So that's. Uh, and I think that dates back to the divorce and, you know, the fact that every Sunday I had to pack up, you know, leave my dad's house and travel to my mother's house. I, I think there's some deep rooted psychological stuff around packing. Excellent. But uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm uh, pretty well situated in the organizational skills front. Excellent. Um, so when, wh when we think about the last thing that you purchased besides food or other consumables, what was that? Do you remember what the last thing is that you purchased? 
Yeah, so I had to think about it because I saw that question in advance, and it took me a while because uh, I'm not a big consumer. But uh, I do recall on my birthday on July 20th, which was the mere 18 days ago, that I spent a little time ambling around, and I and the last thing I bought was on that day, which was a nice black dress, which is quite handy for my day-to-day working life. Excellent, excellent. So no regrets about that purchase. No, no regrets, but, you know, I'm a very, um, well, I did a year, no new stuff, not so long ago, inspired in part by a conversation with so-called no impact man, Colin Beaven. And um, I didn't make a a full year, actually. I did it um, January 1 through October 31st. And um, other than um, consumables or something imperative like a filter for the water, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't buy anything for 10 months. And that was an interesting exercise, I think, because uh, not because I buy a lot of unnecessary items or because I'm a major consumer, but because there are moments uh, in a given, say, six-week period in which I might feel like, I want to buy something. That's that's just what I feel like. I just, I want to buy something. And it could be a keychain or a car. It doesn't really matter but I'll feel like I want to buy something and like I might enjoy doing that and I'll, you know, go out and buy something, usually something minor. Right. But uh, anyway, so it was those, those moments where I had to note I was having that urge and I just set it aside and carry on. Yeah. Does I mean, so do, talk, can you tease that out a little bit for us? I mean, what do you, because you're obviously, you, you know yourself well, do you know where that comes from? Do you have a sense of what's driving that sense of, I mean, is that your hunter-gatherer? What is that that's thinking, like, I need something and I should go get it? Well, I don't, I mean, some people really enjoy shopping. I'm not one of those people. My husband is actually the stay-at-home dad and he does most of the shopping. If anything, I've just, I've suggested we go on a, a new, no new stuff escapade for the, for the next year. So he said, wait till after my birthday, <laughs> on September 3rd, and we'll do it. So, so that's where it's coming. But, uh, I think I think what it is is that I don't typically have any interest in shopping, but every once in a while I'll feel like I want to go to a store, or you know I might be in a situation where uh, I have a little time to kill, and there's a you know there's a nice little shop, and I'll enjoy ambling around in it. You know, it's just a mood. It's a, it's a mood, but it's not. I don't feel like it's I'm filling a gap. You know, which I think some people do experience with with consumption. I, I I'm not feeling like I'm, uh, there's a hole. It's just a particular, you know, a particular kind of a mood. Got it. Yeah. Well, and I would say that with some people, it is definitely an unconscious. There is a desire to fill something and uh, with stuff. And it's, a, it's, an, it's, an easy, it's an easy fix available to folks in developed countries. You can easily walk out your door and find something to buy pretty quickly if what you want to do is that sort of transaction. And I wonder sometimes, is it about, even though it's a, a, a compromised or incomplete transactional experience, you know, maybe it's about trying to be in touch with other people. You know, it's a way of being out in the world and being among people, even again, if it is somehow perverted into this commercial experience as opposed to a, a unstructured intimate moment of just sharing time and space with another person so yeah i mean i think 
I can't, I can't say that every um, purchase I've ever made has been, you know, a rewarding social experience, but there are definitely times, uh, you know, where, where you have a nice connection or, or, well, you're, you, I, I appreciate buying local and supporting, you know, local um, enterprises rather than big chains, or if they're chains, chains that have, you know, real sort of, you know, they're values driven and really conscientious. So, um, it's, I, I feel good, you know, whether it's, you know, buying a tomato or, you know, a battery from, uh, you know, the local shop or the pharmacy. Excellent. So in your work and practice, uh, how does organization and simplifying influence your choices as the, as the executive director of a nonprofit? Talk to us about that. Where, where do you, where are you leveraging your 9.5 organizational skills inside the organization? And where do you find challenges managing teams and uh, driving an organization and keeping a vision and focus? Hmm. Well, so on the upside, um, you know, I've got my systems for managing a significant volume of email and a large range of things to do. And I'm able to sort of stay abreast, not only of the things I need to keep track of, but the things that people I'm managing are working on. And, you know, I'll, I'll tend to be you know, up to date and well prepared to really engage in meetings. Um, and I can shift gears quickly and get back to where I was in terms of like my focus and my energy. Um, the, uh, I think the places where it presents, so in, on balance, it's a huge advantage. And, um, you know, another example is when I'm traveling, you know, other people functioning at, you know, my level, you know, as an executive within a larger organization require a lot more travel support and, assistance than than I would in kind of managing my life as I move through the world. Um, so that's all fantastic. Um, the places where it becomes difficult are more, um, well, for one thing, I have a really strong inner administrative assistant. And so um, I am, uh, you know, while the best use of me is at a strategic level, at a more macroscopic level, really thinking through like the architecture of the organization and the relationships we need to move it forward and, you know, a more externally facing role. I derive a lot of satisfaction from dealing with the kind of the, some of the operational or more administrative details because it's so easy to accomplish something, you know, right. file that, you know, to, to file that away or to check that off the list. And I think, you know, I, I allow myself some of that because, you know, you, when you're trying to deal with big, really entrenched problems, you need to feel like you've achieved something. <laughs> in a given day. But um, I do have to restrain myself sometimes and say, like, that's not the best use of me. Um, and uh, and I think the other thing is that, um, you know, not everybody is naturally well organized. And so uh, I have to if I'm managing somebody who's really struggling with organizational skills, I have to, you know, just figure out how to respond productively and support them to get better systems in place and, you know, try to, try to restrain like judgment or frustration. Sure. Uh, 
That's excellent. And what, I mean, what I want to know, what I'm, what I'm curious about now is if you'll share some of those systems. So given that you must get a tremendous volume of email and how you're organizing your to-do list, what tools are you using and how are you, how are you managing that flow of, of information and demands on your time? Be great to share that with us. Yeah, so it's interesting. My systems evolve over time, and you know, depending on my context, they're variable. Um, so, one of my primary infrastructures for monitoring um, my obligations is actually my inbox itself and flags in my inbox, um, my email inbox. I'm not a zero inbox person. I never have. In fact, my inbox is huge. But I regularly refer back to flagged emails, of which there may be several hundred in my inbox at any given point in time, um, to see not just what, you know, what that's prompting or reminding me to do, but also what someone else, I may be waiting someone else to do. Like I will BCC myself on certain communications with people internally or externally because I want to make sure to follow up and, and you know and and see that gets done. So that's one system, but it's a danger to be. And in, in fact, that system covers a lot of the day-to-day, -day, the significant day-to-day -day work in my life. Interestingly enough, email could be, you know, and I think for some people is a huge time suck because yes. it's a distraction from what you actually need to be doing. And I think we all need to be careful about that. But um, I mean, in my world and in my work, email becomes a very central vehicle for substantive communication and engagement. So it's it's a good proxy for priorities. That being said, um, I also have um, just a you know a, a blank sheet of paper that I'll um, usually start my week with, and I'll and I'll, I'll hand write. The various categories. Um, sometimes I'll start with a week, other times a day. If I'm really feeling overextended and I'm very compressed and I'm in and out of meetings all day, I'll say to myself, given the time I have available outside of meetings, what do I really want to achieve today? And I'll make a note of those things. Um, so I'm always keeping something handwritten that's um, at a more kind of substantive macroscopic level and it's helping me organize and understand how the work connects. Um, and, and, and keep my eye on the ball. Excellent, that's great. So really, I mean, it's pretty low tech in some ways. It's your inbox and flags, and it's a handwritten note that allows you to prioritize and keep appointments with yourself beyond the appointments that other people are setting up for you or other places where you have to be. Yeah, I mean, at times I have had an Excel spreadsheet that, you know, has my tasks and my due dates and my notes on progress. I, I'm not finding that necessary or useful to me right now, in part because I like to have that piece of paper with me in case something, you know, prompts a thought on the tube on the way to work. Um, I've looked at Trello and Evernote and, you know, electronic functions, but I don't know. I feel, I feel like it's nice to connect with something physical in my world, which is so largely um, in the ether. Yeah, I, I would agree. I tend to write notes to myself and then I will translate them off into a digital medium so that I can share them with the team. But I start by handwriting and they, there is brain science that says that the act of pen to paper, physically writing something actually unlocks something for us. And 
provides a pathway, a neural pathway for greater retention. So whether that actually, I mean, you know, everything becomes refuted at some point, yeah. but whether that's true or not, it seems to be true for me that, that it grounds me in the task. And in the same way that being in the shower is one of my most productive places where I can really think unfettered because I'm not, I'm not distracted by anything. I'm just in the water. Um, it allows me to really focus, uh, and I find that handwriting does the same thing for me. It, it, there's really nothing else can intrude in those moments when I'm when I've got pen to paper. So, the other thing I should say, because this is an important compliment to those other two, is that I have a small book. Um, so that I have a small book that I carry with me like um, to all of my meetings. It's a small notebook, yeah. And so I will, um, in some meetings where appropriate, I'll actually take notes on a computer and clarify the next steps, which would, you know, then be translated into a document that, like, for example, all of my travel, um, all of my trips, I produce a trip memo, and it might be 10 to 20 pages long, you know, with detailed notes of all my meetings and next steps and sort of assigning work to me or other people across the team in terms of follow-up, and then that gets transitioned by my assistant into an action points uh, document that's entirely separate from what else I'm doing. And in this book, which I use in cases where it's not appropriate to pull out a computer, like let's say I'm you know, early in the stage of developing a relationship with a new donor, I'm not gonna whip out a computer and track all those notes, but I might make a few notes to myself either during the meeting or thereafter. And I'll just use a little circle um, to indicate any anything I want to follow up on uh, in a meeting or that somebody or I want to remind myself to talk to someone else about. And then I'll scan back through that notebook on occasion and I'll just uh, cross the things off that I've taken care of. Excellent. So there are a few different places where my information resides, but um, each each place serves a slightly different function and for some reason I don't need it all in all in one place because they're all different categories of work and thinking. Got it. So I think that that's also an essential takeaway is to really to recognize that categorization, being able to going back to the organizational triangle, like with like one home for everything and really thinking about bucketizing or putting like items with like items so that <clears throat> when I'm talking to folks about time management, an organization, I think it's essential that they not pit uh, possibly domestic things against work things so that you can't prioritize picking up the dry cleaning against writing the third quarter report. They're, they don't belong in the same sphere. I mean, they're all dealing with the same 24-hour pot of time that we have, but it's gonna, it's gonna create some sort of dissonance or disconnect, I think, for folks when you're trying to figure out, well, what should I do? Dry cleaning might be a one in your personal life, but the third quarter report is a one in your professional life, and they should be, they should be in, in different categories when you're trying to prioritize them. That's, I find that that works really well on, uh, you know, for me in my practice and also in the work that I'm doing with other folks. So yeah, tell me. that's interesting. I actually, my, on my one sheet, I will, I will sometimes have a personal list, um, but I don't tend to, that's only if something is really on my mind that I don't want to forget. More typically, any list I would make at a personal level would be in the morning. And I'm a bizarre person who really just thrives on productivity. I, there's nothing that makes me happier than like accomplishing things. <laughs> so I will wake up on a Saturday and make a list of the things I'll, I, 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 I'm excited to do. And I, sometimes 
you know, to my husband's chagrin, I might even make a list for the things he needs to do. <laughs> he really loves that. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, well, it's good that you, I mean, it's good, it's good that you know each other. So it's, that's, uh, I, mean, I think that's a key to a successful relationship is, is understanding who you're with. Because I know also in stuff discordant relationships, <clears throat> I hear from folks on either side of the spectrum who, who seem surprised sometimes after 20 years of marriage or being with somebody that, you know, this is who the person is. And I think the first thing I say to them is you've been with them for 20 years. This can't be a surprise. So why is it that you keep expecting them to respond differently to either your requests or your demands? And why is it that you have an expectation for how things are going to flow when you have empirical evidence over many, many decades that indicate that this has never become manifest. So why, do, why are you still holding out this, this false promise or expectation that today yeah. is going to be the day that they're actually going to, you know, put the cap on the toothpaste or they're going to, you know, remember to hang the dish towel back up on the, on the doorknob in the kitchen, on the kitchen cabinet. This is not who they are. So the sooner you accept it, and I don't mean you specifically, but I mean one, the sooner one accepts that, yeah. the limitations of who the person is, the easier it's going to be to share space with them, right? Yeah, although I think the trap we all fall into in that context is um, we might not believe that people can or will change, uh, you know, at a big and deep level, you know, that we are kind of essentially who we are. But when it comes to the littler things, you know, you find yourself thinking, if it really means this much to me, and I mean this much to you, <laughs> can't you do that for me? I mean, that, that's kind of where you, that's the snare that uh, you find of yourself it is. in. Yeah. And, yeah. and in that way that we are all probably more self-interested than sometimes we are aware or let on it's it's what is most personal is most universal i think that people tend to be in that narrative of yes i mean can't you tell how important this is to me why do you keep doing that and they're not even paying attention i mean it's not even registering even i mean regardless of how many times we might attempt to communicate it with them in a, you know from a shrill shriek to a calm and measured hey sweetie just uh, just fyi when you kind of upsetting could you maybe consider i mean it, no amount of no amount of manipulating the means of communication sometimes seems to affect change there so it, i mean which leads us to the macro of course when we think about unstuffing america when we, when we think about trying to affect change on a macro level given that people are exactly who they are how do we how do we push forward uh it's not even, I don't even like the term of an agenda, but a mindset shift among, among our neighbors, our communities about right stewardship of resources, of simplifying your life to make it manageable, because it, again, it has impact on both the micro and the macro. If you're so busy trying to find your car keys or your mobile phone or your wallet that, you, that you're always 15 minutes late for anything that you're doing, how are you gonna be effective out in the world if you're dragging that kind of you know, psychic drama behind you, not to mention the physical clutter and disorganization? And it's, a, I, it's, a, it's not a rhetorical question, but it is one of those conundrums that I struggle with in trying to find the direct route through it or the solution to engaging folks who are in, the, in that trap of 
too much to do, not enough time to do it all. So what, what do you think about all of that? Well, I mean, to, to start where you did in terms of, you know, how we, how we convince people to unstuff, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there, there are people with like, you know, real psychological disorders, right? They're hoarders, you know, but let's set them aside and just deal with like your average everyday, like stuff obsession that, you know, most people say in a North American context and increasingly globally who, you know, who, who draw their cues from North American media have. Um, I mean, one thing is, I don't think we spend enough talking about what um, what makes people happy and satisfied and content in their lives. I mean, I was really interested in Bhutan's um, index, not for the gross domestic product, but a, I think it's a gross happiness index. Yes. Um, and they actually analyze, um, you know, their country and uh, not on the basis of how much they produce or their economic uh, productivity, but um, you know, the, the everyday experience of people. So I think we have to do more in the way that you are to help educate people to understand that, um, you know, stuff isn't the answer to, um, you know, to joy or fulfillment or happiness. Um, and, you know, and I say that knowing that we're living in a very privileged position. Um, sure. And it, it sounds privileged to say that, but in fact, there are a lot of people with almost nothing who are a lot more fulfilled and content in their lives um, than, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world who are just filling that gap. So one part is kind of just building that consciousness and awareness and having people find other ways to experience joy and satisfaction. Um, I think another part is just at least for people who are kind of more progressively minded, um, introducing them to a culture that is, you know, so shockingly, I mean, I remember when uh, the story of stuff first came out, watching that and hearing about the thing that most struck me about that very short piece, which explains, you know, the sort of the dangerous obsession we have with producing, consuming, disposing, and destroying stuff in this culture is this notion of planned obsolescence, which is right. that companies actually produce products which are designed to fail or designed to be, you know, sort of socially irrelevant or unacceptable in a short period of time. So you will go back, you know, and, and buy the next version, you know, the I, the iPhone's a perfect example. So, um, you know, I think for people who are progressively oriented and worried about, you know, the, the environmental impacts of, uh, you know, and, and the labor impacts of this kind of world that are educating them about the machinations of corporate culture that are driving, um, you know, at, whether it's advertising, you know, or, or creating, you know, a false sense of need, you know, that can be productive for, for those people as well. And I think, yeah, and then maybe also it's a question of giving people tools to make it easy. Like I also sometimes, in general, I try to have a stuff in, stuff out approach. So if I'm bringing something into my triangle. life, what am I? Yeah, what what am I? Well, I'm bringing something in. What am I? You know, what's heading out? And it's made easy by the fact that I'm constantly being delivered these little plastic bags here in my home in London, which all I have to do is put them out on my porch. You know, full of clothing, which my kids are growing out of or otherwise, and um, that will make its way to a charity nearby. Um, so there's, there's certain 
I don't know. I think it's a combination of factors and I really think different things will resonate with different people. I also, I don't think it's productive to be in a place of sort of pedagogy or, or, um, critique. Um, I think there needs to be, there needs to be some kind of something that's meaningful. That's a kind of a, you know, a call to action or a call to change that someone can resonate with. And I think different people will connect with different, different components of the program. Yeah. Well, I would definitely agree with that. And I, I try to avoid pedagogy as a I mean, I, I mean, there's there's some fundamental tools. I mean, even going back again to the organizational triangle, one home for everything, like with like something and something out. After you get those three rules, there's really, I mean, getting organized is not, it is not rocket science. It's not quantum physics. It's really just about having a home for everything, making sure like objects are together. And when you achieve stuff equilibrium, when you have enough of everything, then letting everything that doesn't serve you go to a different home and it's easy to sustain that, right? I mean, something in, something out makes it really, really easy. The, the whole point of all of that is to get on the other side of it, right? I mean, that for me is where liberation happens, is that once your stuff is under control, once you have enough that is useful to you and is not distracting you, then what do you want to spend your time doing? Because that for me is the bigger picture is, I mean, it's just stuff, right? I mean, how long do you really need to spend moving crap around your home or your office at some point? what do you want to spend your time doing? And that for me, that disconnect is one of the things that drives me is that I feel like so many people are waiting either for permission or clarity or both to be truly engaged in their lives that they're, they're I mean, in some way, I mean, not quite as science fiction as the matrix, but folks are just asleep in this, in this awake slumber as they move through time and space as if something is going to interrupt them and whether that's our work that's going to be the the interrupter or some other epiphany is going to occur to engage them but i mean trying to unlock that and find the different the different touch points where people can be engaged is one of the things that i spend a lot of time thinking about because i i feel so acutely that sense of um beyond the the lack of power and mobility in the world and that sense of impotence and uh, ability to affect change is on the mic on the macro level is also sometimes i think on the micro level where i just i feel it as a as an empathetic person is oh god it's so upsetting to see you so unhappy what can we do to get you happier how you know what What's sitting between you and happiness? How do we get that out of your way? Because it seems like there ought to be a direct path to happiness, which is, it doesn't yeah. seem like it should be that hard to find. And yet I find so many people uh, are confused by that and disengaged from it. And again, it's not, I mean, as the Dalai Lama will say, or any other great teachers in the world, I mean, happiness is not necessarily something that you're going to do it's something you're going to experience and what's sitting between you and that experience. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, no, I think it's a, I think it's a worthy, uh, I think it's a worthy, worthy focus for a life's work because I think it's at the root of 
a lot of challenges we face at a at a personal and at a at an ecosystem level, and I don't think people are conscious enough about what it means to continue to opt into and contribute and sustain the the new con, the new consumer culture. I mean, by which I mean, uh, very few people um, look to secondhand markets or flea shops or. Uh, community share opportunities to get what they need or borrowing. Um, you know, if you get on, you know, a, the right range of listservs, um, you know, you can you can have whatever you need. In fact, you know, I mean, I remember once I, during my new no new stuff year, my 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 kids uh, grew out of their snow parkas, and I didn't want to buy a new snow parka because I had made this commitment, but I wasn't going to let them go cold. So I put a note out. I said. We're in the market for some new parkas, you know. Does anybody have anything they want to get rid of? And sure enough, I had like four parkas on my porch <laughs> the next day. Um, so, you know, it's it's amazing what you know, and and people enjoy giving of course. Uh, yeah. things away and 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 supporting you in that in that way. So yeah, well, great. Is um, there anything uh, as we wrap up? Are there any final thoughts? Anything that you'd like to share with the listeners that we haven't covered, or anything that's uh, floating around? No, I don't think so. But I think, you know, really, I guess what it, what it comes down to is figuring out what really matters, you know, to all of us, um, both in terms of how we spend our time and how we spend our money. And, you know, in terms of money itself, I mean, I've been trying to teach my children, there's really only three things you can do with your money, you can spend it, you can save it, or you can give it away. And I think you should do those things if you can afford to in roughly equal proportion. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one, that's one set of choices. And the other is, you know, what is your, what does your time mean to you and how are you going to use it? And I, I think we tend to live in a scarcity mentality about time. I don't have enough time. Um, I don't have enough resources, you know, and if we can transition ourselves from a perspective of scarcity to a perspective of sufficiency at a minimum or potentially even of abundance, um, you know, the, you know, the world is our oyster. And so that's, you know, that's what I try to do. I don't, uh, like you say, there are contexts in which there isn't enough time, you know, where you're really that overextended children with special needs, parents with special needs, a demanding job. You, you you barely have time to, you know, go to the bathroom. I know that does happen, but for the vast, vast majority of us, we are making unconscious choices all the time about, you know, the time we spend on Facebook or watching the latest Game of Thrones series or whatever else it is. And those are choices and it's fine for us to make them, but we should recognize that that does mean there's other things we might enjoy doing that we're not doing. Excellent. I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's always great to talk to you and see you. And I think you've left us with uh, some great great tools and information. So thanks so much for being here and everybody, thanks for joining us for another episode of Unstuff America. Thanks for listening to Unstuff America. If you like the podcast, the best compliment you can give us is to share it with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review at iTunes.